Hey everyone, it's Ryan. I'm recording this late at night in Boston from Josh's bedroom. Wait, that didn't really sound right. Because <laughs> you're not yeah, in, because yeah, you're not talking in this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll skip that. I'll say Sean's bedroom. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Hey everyone, it's Joshua. I'm recording this late at night in Boston. Uh, last night we kicked off the Minimalism documentary tour with the film's world premiere in New York City, and it was awesome. I just want to say thanks real quick to everyone who came out, everyone who waited in the rain. You all are wonderful. Uh, after the screening, we recorded a live version of our Ask the Minimalists podcast with the film's director, Matt Diavella, which we're going to uh, share with you in a moment. But first, just a quick note. As you probably know, our entire tour is completely sold out. So thank you all to everyone who, who's attending. But for those of you who wanted to get a seat but you didn't get one in time, uh, don't worry. There will still be 10 tickets at the door of each theater. And those are first come, first serve. So you can show up. Once everyone has a seat, then you can purchase your tickets and, and get into one of our live events. You can find our entire tour schedule at theminimalists.com slash tour. We're going to be in a bunch of cities, Boston, Washington, D.C., Miami, Dallas, uh, Dayton, Ohio, Chicago, Seattle, San Francisco. Then we're going to be in Los Angeles, Salt Lake City, Missoula, Montana, and Toronto. But also remember, the film is going to be in about 400 theaters across the United States and Canada. Yes, that's right. It will be in Canada. You can find your closest theater at minimalismfilm.com. Uh, just click on See the Film. Okay, that's all. We really hope you enjoy this special live episode of The Minimalists Podcast. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to our first ever live edition of the Minimalists Podcast. I'm Joshua Fields Milburn. And I'm Ryan Nicodemus. And for the first time, we have a, a guest on our podcast. Wow. Honored. Matt Diavella. <laughs> I'm not a minimalist. The minimalist. No, well, you are a minimalist, today, though. Yeah. And, and so you all are the first audience to get to see this, this version of the film. So we, yes, yes. Well, thank you. And you all did an awesome job. This sold out really quickly, and so they gave us the, the bigger theater, and then y'all sold that out, so this has been amazing. And we, we had a, uh, a film festival version of the film that went around through a bunch of film festivals, so some of you may have seen that. It was an appreciably different version from the film, and we fought with Matt repeatedly about all the changes that were made between that film and this film, and I think all of our, our fighting finally made a... Uh, he pushed back on us a lot, basically, but it made it, it made uh, a much better film than we had before. We had a really good film, and I feel great about the perspectives that um, that we were able to put out there and really share a bunch of different recipes in hopes that you got value and from at least some of them. And I know that your life probably doesn't look exactly like any one of the lives in there. When I first discovered minimalism, my life didn't look like Colin Wright's. It didn't look like Leo's. It, it didn't look like any of the, the minimalists who I admired. 
and I knew I wanted to create my own recipe for minimalism. And that was our hope, was to deliver that to you in a way that made minimalism a little bit more palatable, a little bit more approachable. And so we'd love to know what kind of questions you have, either about the film, um, or about minimalism, or about Ryan's hair care products. Um, we have a microphone set up somewhere, I believe. Is that right? Somewhere. Oh, it's over here. There's one here, and I think there's another one over there as well. So uh, feel free to step oh, up. No, there's the only mic. one over here. Is there one on this side as well? Oh, is there? They're on both sides. So okay. feel free to step up to either side. Oh, yes. Thank you for breaking the ice. Like, it always takes one person to kind of, like, get the questions going. And just say your name and whatever your question is. Okay. I'm Elizabeth Ortiz Schwartz, and I was the first person who made a question on the phone on the first podcast. So awesome. Am, right. Awesome. Nice circle. to meet you in person. Yes, Thanks I for calling about, in. I uh, about decluttering gradually versus doing it all at once. But I just wanted to thank you. Awesome film. Great message. And just keep up the amazing work. Oh, thank you very thank you so much. much. Thank you. Oh, yeah, you're more than welcome to come up here and give compliments, too. <laughs> yeah, that was an easy question. <laughs> right. I see someone with a question. Ellen. She looks come on very down. inquisitive. No worries. You feel free to, like, form a, a line or yeah. cue, as it were. Hello. Howdy. Hi. Oh, you can just pull it out of there. There you go. I am not a minimalist. <laughs> neither, neither was I until I said I was. Yeah, I just, I really liked the film, though. I just had a question. I was really appreciative as a mom of three that you added the parenting bit. Sure. Can, is there the, the wife of the minimalist? Is there, like, what's the balance with three small children? I get that there was the dad of six. I, I just want to see how you do that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> In real life. <laughs> Well, I, I can tell you this. So, so I became a, a parent by proxy last year. And, and so the life you saw in this film, which we started filming toward the end of, of 2013, and most of it was 2014, um, the life that I have now is very similar in most ways, but also appreciably different in, in some ways as well. So I have uh, almost a three-year-old uh, um, kid. And it's, it's an interesting perspective in my life because I noticed that because I had simplified my life prior to that, it made that transition into that world a, a lot more simple, right? Uh, but what I've picked up, or quite a few things, is the lessons that I've learned, well, little kids don't know that yet, or even other kids, or most adults don't know the lessons that I've learned through the process. I mean, I can look back, I'm 34 years old now, I can look back at my 27-year-old self with a, a certain amount of disdain, I can just sort of nod my head and, 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 and wonder what I was doing when I was 27 and all of these weird decisions I was making. But of course, when, when I'm looking at, at Ella, uh, she's two and a half years old, and I'm trying to just teach her you know, basics, like delaying gratification, right? And, and it's incredibly difficult, but there are, there are lessons in ephemerality that I've, that I've learned over the last several years, meaning learning how to enjoy the moment. I was talking to a reporter about this the other day. Um, every morning, I, I have some pretty bad issues with my back. I have to do these, these interesting exercises with a balloon in the morning that helps with, with some back pain that I have. But anyway, afterward, I have a, a balloon that's blown up. And so in the morning, I'll go into Ella's room and I will give her the balloon. She's really, really grumpy in the mornings. And when I, when I give her the balloon, she's instantly happy. And, and of course, what happens when you give a two-and-a-half-year-old a balloon, 
It pops. In a couple minutes, inevitably, it's going to pop. Almost every morning. And it upsets her every morning. But over the course of several months of doing this, she has learned the, to appreciate the fact that I need to enjoy this while it's right here in front of me. Now, the first few times it happened, she freaked out and she started crying, obviously. And it was the end of the world. But as time went on, she realized, okay, this is going to pop. A, I need to take care of it. And B, uh, I, need, I, I need to enjoy this now as it's in front of me. And let's play with it. Well, let's have fun with it. But let's also realize that, you know what, this, this isn't going to last forever. And to me, that was a perfect metaphor for everything else in life. And so I guess what I'm saying is really what, what I've realized is that, is that our kids are watching us. And we can say whatever we want to say about you should do this, you should do that. But when they see the why, they see your actions behind what you're doing, it's far more important than you know, telling someone what they should do. In fact, I'm still at 34. If someone tells me you should do something, it's my inclination to do the exact opposite of whatever they tell me I should do. And I think kids are the same way. And, and they really see from our actions. I don't have any kids, so it's really easy for me to give advice. Um, no, I, I will share something um, that an audience member told me uh, at one of our events where someone asked a similar question, and I'm like, you don't want you know a single guy with no kids like giving you advice. And someone stepped up, and they said, let me tell you what I do with my, with my kids. I, I hate telling my children no. I just hate it. So I try to tell them as yes as often as I can. And the example that she gave was uh, like her little five-year-old uh, daughter w would come home with an art project, something she colored up, and she would go to her mom and be like, hey, mom, look, you know, look at this great picture that I colored in school today. Can we hang it on the refrigerator? And of course, there's already like, you know, art overflowing the uh, front of the refrigerator. So she'll say, yeah, we absolutely can't put that on the refrigerator. Let's walk over and let's pick which piece of art we're going to take off the refrigerator and replace it with. So they will go over to the refrigerator. They, uh, she will, the daughter will choose uh, which piece of art she no longer wants to display, and then they'll walk over to the trash together, and uh, they get rid of, uh, of that art project. Very similar uh, with toys. It's, it's like if they ask for a toy and it's appropriate and they have the money for it, then the mom will say, yeah, I would love to get that for you. Um, which toy would you like to donate and give to another child? I thought that was a really good way to kind of uh, face those questions. Yeah, and I also don't have any kids, but I guess what I would say is that um, it's never perfect. I think a lot of times we have this ideal of what life is going to be like. You want to be a minimalist, especially in the very beginning stage when I became a minimalist. I was like, this is going to be, this is going to change my life and everything's going to be perfect from here on out. And I think the one thing that you start to realize is that uh, like these guys were saying, like in the film, it is simpler. I think it's easier to navigate a lot of the obstacles that do come into your life, but it's not perfect. And I imagine when you have kids, um, even being in a relationship, there's compromises that you need to make. You need to um, decide what's going to work for the group as opposed to what's just going to work for yourself. I think you were next. Thank you. You can just, yeah, you got it. Hi, my name is Hollis. Thank you for this wonderful documentary. It was a great experience. Thank Thanks you. for coming out. Many of the people in this room are concerned about how to bring minimalism to their children. I respectfully suggest that part of the problem our generation is facing is bringing minimalism to our parents. Mm. Mm. One of the most harrowing experiences I faced in my life after my mom died 
was excavating our childhood home. It was like an archaeological dig for my Depression-era mother who saved everything. She was fit. She was healthy. She was solvent. But we found like 20 pairs of rusted uh, scissors, 10 tennis rackets that hadn't hit a ball in 40 years. Uh, we found a not small bag of adult human teeth uh, none of which belonged to anybody in our family. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Uh, it was a, a harrowing experience. And as an aging boomer myself, I'm, I'm just out of curiosity, how many people in this room are over the age of 60? <laughs> there are four people in this room over the age of 60, and you guys will face possibly the same experience we faced uh, when we bite the dust, mm. uh, unless we get wise mm. and deal with it ourselves. Living with clutter is a horrible life, and it's also a horrible legacy. So I'd like to ask your experience working with older people and how the boomer generation is facing up to We're the P Peter Pan generation. Uh, uh, we grew up in an age of extreme abundance, and uh, we went from sex, drugs, drugs, and rock and roll to um, just too, too much of everything. You know, one generation from Ozzy and Harriet to Ozzy and Sharon. So I'd really be interested in your take on how minimalism can be brought to an aging population so we don't leave our kids with a horrible legacy of too much stuff. Wow, thank you. Great question. So we touched on it a little bit in the film. In 2008, my mother moved to, to Florida to finally retire, because that's what you do when you live in Ohio or New York. You move to Florida. And um, a few months after she moved down there, she found out she had lung cancer. And I spent a lot of time with her that year as she was going through chemo and radiation. And um, well, when she passed, I, I realized I needed to make one last trip down to down to Florida. And this time it was to deal with her stuff. And so I flew from Dayton, Ohio, down to St. Pete Beach, Florida. And, and when I arrived, I got to mom's tiny one-bedroom apartment. I found about three apartments worth of stuff crammed into that tiny one-bedroom apartment. Now, she wasn't a hoarder. There were no teeth in her freezer. <laughs> um, but she owned a lot of stuff, right? She had 65 years worth of accumulations. I uh, walked into her living room, it was stuffed with big antique furniture and old paintings and more doilies than I could count. And her, her kitchen was stuffed with plates and cups and bowls and utensils and her bathroom was stuffed with enough hygiene products to start a small beauty supply business. And her linen closet, it, it looked like someone was running a hotel out of her linen closet. It was stuffed with mismatched bath towels and beach towels and dish towels and bed sheets and blankets and quilts. And then I went to her bedroom. Now, can anybody tell me why mom had 14 winter coats stuffed into her bedroom closet? Some of them still had tags on them. 14. Now, she lived in St. Pete Beach, Florida. 
Yeah, uh, suffice to say, Mom owned a lot of stuff, right? And I had no idea what to do with any of it. So I did what any good son would do. I called U-Haul. Called U-Haul, and I asked for the largest truck they had. In fact, I needed a, one so large, I had to wait an extra day for the 26-foot tr truck to arrive. And as I waited, I invited some of Mom's friends over to help me deal with her stuff. There was just too much stuff to go at it alone. And um, I called up a storage locker and, and back in Ohio, and I asked for the large, largest storage unit they had. And you know what they asked me? Do you want one that's climate controlled? I said, is that so mom's stuff could be comfortable? No, I don't want one that's climate controlled. I just want a big box with a padlock on it, just in case. Just in case. The three most dangerous words in the English language. And I think that's really what it boils down to uh, when we're educating other people is we hold on to a lot of stuff just in case. And the LA Times is the one who reported that the average American household has more than 300,000 items in it. But of course, most of us aren't hoarders. We just hold on to a lot of stuff. I know my mom certainly did. And so I was packing up all her stuff, and I found these four boxes that were under her bed as I was going through all the things. And um, I, there were these old printer paper boxes, like kind of heavy, sealed with excessive amounts of packing tape. So I pulled them out from under the bed one by one. And I looked down at each box. And I know this sounds like a bad mystery novel now. But I looked at, at the boxes, and they were just labeled one, two, three, four. It was my old elementary school paperwork, grades one through four. And all these memories came rushing back. And I realized that mom was holding onto these boxes because she was trying to hold onto a piece of me. But then I thought to myself, well, wait a minute. Mom hadn't opened those boxes in more than two decades. And it became clear to me in that moment that our memories aren't in our things. Our memories are inside us. And I think that's the message that ultimately allows us to detach from the things that we give so much meaning to. We're attached to those things because we've assigned some arbitrary meaning to most of them. And it's not that there's anything inherently wrong with the stuff. I, I think the problem is the, the meaning that we tie to those things. It prevents us from letting go. But I'll also say this. I don't think that you can force anyone. One of the questions that someone here has right now is, how can I get my friend, spouse, mother, daughter to be a minimalist? And, and my answer to you is you, you can't try to change someone. The, the best answer is you can, you can show them the benefits of minimalism. When I became a minimalist, I didn't jump up and say, hey, look at me. I'm becoming a minimalist. And Ryan, you should too because you have a lot of shit. But he did, but, it, but that wouldn't have worked, right? What worked was, why? Why, why are you so happy, as, as he said? Why, why, why the hell are you so happy? And people see the benefits. People at work started saying, you seem so much calmer. You seem less stressed. What the hell's going on with you? You seem so much nicer. And, and then that opened up the door for me to talk about what I had done for my life and how I had simplified, and how it wasn't a perfect life, but I was walking 
in a direction that was in line with my values. My short-term actions were in line with my long-term values. And I think if we can show that, that will show people the benefits of living a more simple, a more deliberate life. Thank you so much for this. Um, you're making me think about so much really about how it's like, um, you know, how we eat also, minimalist um, wise, uh, how we exercise, a lot of different things. But, um, you know, there's one thing about how you live your personal life, but then how about some discussion on reconciling your professional life when uh, so many careers are circling around consumption? And yeah, um, I often think to myself, like, what would happen if, like, the internet blew up and uh, you know, our, our books were lost and we could never find them again. And, and like somehow I had to go back and get a regular job. I've often thought about like, how would I approach that? And ultimately, I would look for something that w w that was in alignment with my values and beliefs. And when I say values and beliefs, um, I'm talking about uh, my, my health is very important to me. My relationships are very important to me. Uh, cultivating passion, growing contributing, those are things uh, that I have to focus on in order to, to uh, live a meaningful life. And I would go after something that would allow me to, to focus on those things specifically. Like my whole plan from the beginning, uh, when I first discovered minimalism and I was like, oh yeah, if I don't have this huge mortgage and this brand new car, uh, I don't have to work 60 or 70 hours a week. Um, I could probably get my bills down to where I could live off of a like a barista salary, uh, and at the time I just I was really adamant about getting my time back so I could focus on those things. So, yeah, certainly um, we have to pay the bills. We 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 have to uh, uh, keep the lights on and keep and keep food in our mouths. And uh, you know, it's not like Josh and I just like quit our jobs and started a blog. Um, it, it took a lot of work to, to, to get to this point. Um, and we worked a lot. The difference is that now the work that we do, uh, it, it is in, in alignment with our values and beliefs. Yeah, but I would just add that don't follow your passion. Seriously, I think it's shitty advice when someone tells you to follow your passion. You see it at like on successories posters and in self-help books and and stuff because it presupposes that you have a pre-existing passion like you were born to be an astronaut or a yoga instructor or a writer or a barista or whatever the truth is there are dozens of things that you can be passionate about so there isn't just a passion for you to follow i think the better advice the more nuanced advice is what ryan just said cultivating your passion so find something that aligns with your values your interests and then find a way to cultivate that into a passion. And ultimately, there are ways that, of course, you can turn that into a living if you, if you want to. But, but if you have developed something that is a passion, it, it may or may not be a route that you want to take. I mean, Ryan is extremely passionate about snowboarding. In fact, when, when you first meet someone, what's the first question they ask you? What do you do? It's like, well, what do you mean, what do I do? Like, I, I listen to music, I go to concerts, I watch movies. Oh, you're asking me, where do I work? How much money do I make so you can compare you to me on the socioeconomic ladder? We just don't ask the question that way because then we seem rude, right? And so instead we just say, what do you do? And then we recite our business, uh, business card title, the, the thing that's on our business card. 
And, and then we spend the next 10, 15 minutes talking about um, what we do to earn a paycheck. Yeah, we all need to earn a paycheck, right? I mean, we all need to earn money uh, in order to, to pay the bills. Uh, I think the, the key for, for being, uh, being more deliberate about, about that is getting, getting the bills down to what is sustainable for us so that we're no longer tied to a particular lifestyle that, that forces us to, to behave long-term in ways that are out of sync with our, with our, with our values. And, and so I know for me, uh, this, this whole minimalism thing was a really beautiful accident, and I'm glad it worked out. But my initial intent when I walked away from the corporate world was I was going to write fiction, and I was going to work at the coffee shop two blocks from my house. And no one believed me when I was leaving, and I was you know, making six-figure salary, and they're like, well, where are you really going? Because if anyone could be a writer, then anyone would do it. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. I'm not the first person to go down this path to try to earn a living as a writer. Like, someone has done this before, right? So there is a recipe or a model by which, you know, a template that I, that I can try to at least emulate in, in, in some way. Yeah, I guess the only thing that I would add is I think um, that there is a lot to say about the changing environment and where in which work takes place, where it seems like a lot more companies are being open to remote work, working from home, uh, being a little bit more flexible in terms of that structure. Because I think there's a lot of pressure for people who have full-time jobs, uh, which I would imagine are most people in this room, it, to dress a certain way when you're at work, which makes it a little bit harder. I mean, I work from home. I made this film, we made this film, at least I did in my bedroom, where, like usually wearing nothing, but I'm not gonna give you too many details, but um, t-shirt and jeans, let's just say that. Um, so it, it was a very, it's a lot easier, I think, when you don't have to go out and present yourself every single day to, to coworkers. Um, but I think that the world is starting to change and that people are becoming more accepting of those kind of working environments and lifestyles. And that's well, you sh you're that. shaking your head. What, what's the? Yeah. I think I was. I mean, I'm. It, it. I'm well aware of right livelihood, so it's it's a little bit. You know, I'm well aware of that, but it's sort of like if you're doing brand work, for instance, Porta Hemplo, it's sort of difficult to like. When the the end goal is something that can. Is to sell more products. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. More services. <clears throat> so then it's you know really then trying to align yourself with something that. Is not causing harm or not causing more consumption in a way that's really egregious. Right. Yeah. Thank you for the question. Oh. Hi. My name is Virginia. Um, that was really great. Thank you. So Thank you much. very much. Um, I uh, I was really surprised to see Rick Hansen. I, I'm really a big fan of his, and I just happened to have started this sort of. Buddhist inquiry about two years ago because I went to see him speak at Tibet House down in Chelsea, and uh, I just think he's he's fabulous. And I was wondering, kind of, I saw you know a few Buddhists in this film, and I was wondering kind of what your connection has been to that uh, sort of path, and if you have sort of found yourselves sort of becoming more Buddhist in any way, and you know if not religion, at least like lifestyle. It, it's great because. Like, we'll be out signing books in an event, and people will come up to us, and they'll be like, you know, it is just so nice to see two Christians going around and spreading the message of Jesus. And we just kind of, like, smile and nod, like, yes. <laughs> and then, like, a few people later, they'll be like, it is so nice to see two young men going out and, and spreading the message of Buddha. 
Um, uh, we got an email the other day. Um, someone was like, you know, uh, Muhammad was the uh, original minimalist. And, and, and ultimately, um, I don't know what Matt's beliefs are. Josh and I have very radic- radically different beliefs when it comes to spir- spirituality. Um, in fact, that's why we don't write about it is because uh, we would never agree on anything that we would write. Um, but, but I think that's the beautiful thing about this message and about this movement is that it's, it's open to all. It, it, you could be a Buddhist. You could be an atheist. You could be uh, whatever and, and still take some ingredients away from this because no matter who, you know, who we're praying to or what religion we are, uh, this is certainly uh, benefiting the greater good. There's no doubt about that. Matt, you want to talk about religion? I would love to talk about religion. My mom's in the audience, so I'm sure she would love to hear about this. <laughs> he has eight, eight, eight or nine, 19 siblings. Yeah, uh, Catholic. Catholic family. Yeah, yeah, so that explains that. <laughs> um, no, you, actually, the other thing I'll say about the film is uh, there were several, di- intentionally several different perspectives, um, and we found this early on when we started going out on the road, and we would have rabbis show up at an event, and we, in the film, we have uh, Joshua Becker's a pastor, uh, Sam Harris, for those of you who know Sam Harris, is a pretty well-known atheist, he wrote The End of Faith, and and, and so you, what we tried to do was, was say that this template is really a, a value system, right? And while Ryan and I have different beliefs and many of us have different beliefs there, we, can, we share the same values at the end of the day. So whether it's Buddhism, Dan Harris is a Buddhist, he, he's in the film. Um, and, and so w- whether or not you have one particular path, they all end up in a, a pretty similar place in terms of, in terms of our values. And, and that, that's what's really nice. So the people I surround myself with now, we're, we're different in terms of personalities. Quite often we have different interests. We certainly have different beliefs, uh, different desires, but, but we tend to share similar values at the end of the day. You're welcome. Yeah, I was just thinking that whatever it is you want to make room for, whether it's, you know, any path, by clearing your clutter and getting rid of all this stuff, you kind of make room for, like, the message is what's really important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Thank totally. You. Thanks again. Thank you. We'll do one more here. Hi, I'm Sam. Um, Sam's last question has to be outstanding. <laughs> I, it's great for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's all that matters. Yeah. Um, so my husband and I, we tried to minimize probably like a year ago, and then we just recently read your book a few months ago, um, and we're like, oh, we're not alone, so this is cool. It's an actual thing. Uh, but when like Christmas comes around, none of our parents or friends read this book, so mm. how do you tell your friends and family members, please don't buy me crap? You just, you, you, it's, it's a paradox. You have to give them our book. <laughs> <laughs> nice job. That's the upsell. Available for sale out in the lobby. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, it's just minimize them, minimize their friends and family. I, <laughs> don't write that down. I'm joking. Uh, no, here, here. Well, actually, you know what? I want to hear what Matt does because I, I'm much more draconian. And yeah, uh, yeah. No, actually, this. I've seen Josh before turn down stuff, and <laughs> it, it could get a little cringy. Where like somebody's like, I made you this hand bound from leather, and, and he's like, smack no, it out of their hand. And I'm like, you should probably take it. And he's like, no, no, I'm just going to leave this here, and I'm going to leave the room. Um, and that happens. Uh, but I think 
<laughs> but what it is is I think you have to say no. Um, oftentimes, I mean, that's what advertising, they're trying to sell you stuff on social media. People are perhaps pushing um, things that, y that you may not want, but you, you kind of have this desire for. Uh, my girlfriend's mom, I met her. She was uh, amazing, and then she offered up three gifts upon meeting her. Uh, so you have to choose. If, if those things add value to my life, if I use them, if I enjoy them, um, I'll keep them. If not, you can re-gift. You can give it to somebody else um, next Christmas, or hopefully you can get rid of it a little bit sooner than that. Um, but I think you know, there's a lot of ways to go about it, but I certainly wouldn't suggest keeping it if you're not going to use it, just storing it in your attic. And um, you, know, you would want somebody to get value from those objects and those gifts. Um, I, I would also add this. Beforehand, it's, I think it's really about setting expectations way in advance. So it is May 1st right now, 2016. Now is the time to start talking about Christmas presents. Or actually last month or two months ago was a good time to start just planting these seeds and setting expectations. Because what happens is it's Thanksgiving and people are like, I'm getting ready to go out on Black Friday and buy you a bunch of stuff you didn't ask for. And, and, and just try to set the expectations early on and often enough that it becomes a pattern over a period of time. That has worked really well for me. Um, it's also worked really well for my partner, Becca. And, and I mean, her parents still try to buy Ella a bunch of stuff. Everyone tries to buy Ella stuff because, you know, she's two and a half. And, and so by setting those expectations in advance. But the other way to set that expectation isn't to tell them what you don't want, but to tell them what you do want. So gift me experiences. And, and sometimes a book can be an experience. Going out to a concert together can be an experience. Um, or also consumables, a nice bottle of wine, really great bag of coffee. Something that you can enjoy together is, is generally an experience over, over a consumable. And, and I think if you set that expectation up front, People appreciate that because ultimately, why are they buying you the gift? It's because they want to show that they, well, that they love you. And we've been we've been sold this meme that gift giving is a love language, and, and I think that's like saying pig Latin is a romance language. I, I mean, the truth is, yes, the 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 gesture is love, but what we're doing is trying to say here is this shiny trinket. To, to represent that, and I don't think that's necessary. What, what I think is, is necessary is to show someone you care every single day. And so the other thing that I do that you may or may not want to do is I avoid obligatory gift-giving holidays. So I can still ce celebrate the holiday season or whatever, but I, when, if I get someone a gift, and it, it can be, here, I got this for you on May 1st. Well, what is today? It's not my birthday, it's not Christmas. Yeah, because I thought you'd really find value in this. And I care about you, and I want you to have something you're going to find value in. And I didn't feel obligated to give this to you. Well, doesn't that feel so much better than, oh, it's here's the thing I'm supposed to give you on February 14th, and now you're supposed to give me a thing, and we're going to compare these two things. And, and, and then it becomes this weird uh, obligation of, of exchange. And so I try to, when I give the best gifts, they tend to be on days where I'm not obligated to do so. I'll just tell you a quick story. Um, when... Uh, what, like after a month of the website being up, my mom called me, and she was like, "Hey, son, how's it going?" I'm like, "It's going great. How are you doing?" She's like, "I'm I'm doing well." Hey, what's this minimalist crap? And I I was like, "Oh, you found the website because like we hadn't told anyone. She must have been googling my name and came across it." And uh, she was like, "So what are you doing? Like, I mean, are you going to be around for holidays anymore? Or like, you know, what's going on? Can I give you gifts still? Can I buy you stuff?" 
And I said, Mom, I'll definitely be around for holidays. In fact, I hope to be around more because that's about the only time I saw her during the year was during holidays. I said, I really hope I can see you more than just holidays. Um, I said, but yeah, when it comes to buying me stuff, I would prefer you not to buy me anything. And she was like, well, I'm your mother and I'm still going to buy you stuff. And I suppose she has that right as my mother to say that. And I was like, well, mom, if you do that, uh, then I'm going to have to, if I, don't, if I don't use the item that you get me, if I have no use for it, I'm going to have to find someone else who can get some benefit from it. Like I'll have to give it away or maybe go donate it or something. This is not the thing to tell your mother, by the way. <laughs> um, she, got, she got pretty angry, rightfully so, I guess. And we were kind of going back and forth. And eventually I got to a point where I just felt like it was just getting out of control. And I'm like, Mom, I love you so much. You love me too, right? And she's like, yeah, of course I love you. I'm like, I want you to be happy. You want me to be happy too, right? She's like, yeah, of course I want you to be happy. And I'm like, well, if that's the case... I don't, I don't need you to be a minimalist. I don't need you to have a packing party. I'm not going to come to your home and, and judge the things that you have in your house. I just need support. That's it. And that's what really kind of uh, touched her heart. And I had that conversation over and over and over again. And then uh, she came and visit, visited uh, me and my girlfriend out in Montana last February for the first time. And we had like just gotten a new place. And she brought out like these candle holders and like this owl vase. And she's like so excited to give these to me. And I'm like, you know, smiling and hugging her. And I'm like, of course I'm not like, what are you, what are you bringing me stuff? Like I'm very, you know, being very courteous. Um, and she was like, I really hope you like this stuff and I hope it fits in your home. But if it doesn't, uh, I totally understand uh, that, that you, you might have to give that away. She's like, but I just wanted to show you uh, how proud I am of you and, and how much I appreciate you for having me out here. It took her four years to get to that point. And, and, and it, was, it was just like a magical moment. And uh, I, I think having a conversation similar to that will really help kind of change the hearts of, of, of your friends and loved ones who are still getting you stuff. Great. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Before we close things out, uh, since we have Matt here, and this is the only one of these he, he's going to be at as we... Uh, uh, go around the country. Uh, we're going to be in Boston in the morning. Um, we wanted to ask him a couple questions, maybe. Yeah. That, that's okay with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm not as good as the minimalist questions as you guys are. Surprise. Well, <laughs> well, maybe we could talk a little bit about the film because this is your your first feature film, and and as much time as we spent on the road, um, we never really got into your motivations for wanting to do something like this. So would you be willing to talk to, to yeah, absolutely. talk about the motivations for making this it's, film? It's funny. I saw a friend, Jacob, outside, and he was saying, we were kind of reminiscing about a conversation we had, which was, I guess, about four years ago or so. It was a little bit before we started the film, where he was like, man, this was your dream to make a feature-length documentary. Uh, and then just to see, like, I walked outside, and then I see, like, a group of 20 people, and I'm like, half of my family, and I'm like, oh, well, a lot of people came out. And then I go around the corner, and I just see this line down the block, and I was just blown away. I was like, this is crazy. Because, like I said, I, I made this movie and edited it in my bedroom. <laughs> so I think uh, what it is now, too, is The entire just, thing was filmed in his bedroom. Too. Yeah, exactly. A lot, of, a lot of green screens screen. everywhere. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, I just... It, That's be it, creepy for Natalie, by the way. Yeah, totally creepy. <laughs> Natalie wasn't cool with it at all. Um, but I just... 
just to see how we started it. I mean, really in terms of filmmaking, this was minimalist filmmaking at its finest. Um, and we had a very minimalist budget of zero dollars to, to make this film. We, we literally just went into this thing uh, with just a lot of passion to want to wanna materialize this project. Um, and really without an idea of how it was gonna come together in the end. Like one of my favorite quotes is from another filmmaker, uh, said that if your story doesn't change along the way, then you weren't listening. Uh, and that's something that I think really rang true with this film. Like we started out and we interviewed with a lot of people that gave their personal stories. And it was very anecdotal and, and which was amazing. And, and you get to see these people like AJ Leon, which like, just I'm always, every time I see that scene with AJ, who is the um, the Wall Street broker, it's just I'm so enthralled, and I'm like, this dude is a genius, and I just want to listen to him for an hour. Um, but then we start to interview other people. That it wasn't just about personal. It was let's take a step back and let's talk to with Juliet Shore and Colin Bevan, and and why are we here, and and um, kind of how we got to this point as a society and as a culture. And I still think it's something we're figuring out. And I think it's something that's changing very quickly. As you see, movements like minimalism growing. Um, but just, I, I think that just to go back to that quote, it's, it's about looking at um, what you're gathering along the way and continually changing and figuring it out. And like uh, Josh was saying in the beginning, there were changes. Like we had this film festival cut and it was great. And we ha literally had a standing ovation the first time we screened it. So at that point, and at that point, I knew I wanted to make changes to the film, um, and I had talked to them about that before then. And then they got the standing ovation, and I was like, "Ah, I'm never going to be able to make the changes I want to make to the film." Um, and then, you know, I just kept pushing them a little bit, and I was like, "Guys, I think I think we can do a little bit better. I think that there are certain changes that we can make um, to expand this film and, and to expand the reach and to kind of tie this narrative together in a more cohesive way." Um, and we went back and forth, and I would say, you know, it, it took a while before we were all on the same page, before we could all, I mean, it, 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 Josh, you said something about, like, the different peaks, and it's like, you have to be able to, just like minimalism, um, listen to other people's feedback, and to, there's another quote where it's, uh, I think it's like an African proverb, where you can go fast alone, but you go far together. So if I just did this all by myself and didn't listen to any other feedback, I don't think we, we definitely wouldn't have gotten this final product. We wouldn't have gotten to where we are. So I think it took an entire group to come together um, to really make it what it is. I kind of have two questions. You can choose which question you want to answer. Um, I get asked this question all the time. Uh, and every time I get asked, I'm like, I wonder what Matt would say. People always ask me, like, what's your biggest learning experience through this, this documentary? Uh, actually, just answer that one. Question two. No. Um, I would say, I, I give you like a, a specific example of when we were filming. Uh, I, w I would say like the, the, the biggest thing I have is questioning assumptions. Um, I remember we were in Albuquerque, and this is like a really just a small, it seems like a very micro, almost like unimportant um, event in terms of the entire documentary. But Josh went up to the roof of our hotel, and he's like, Matt, you can go up there. There's a great shot. You can get it like a time lapse of the sunset. Um, so I went up there and I shot it and I was like, oh, I would love to get a shot of this, uh, the sunrise over the beautiful Albuquerque mountains. And there was this big hotel room, the, the biggest uh, building in Albuquerque blocking the view. I was like, oh, I guess I can't get it. I was like, well, why don't I just go over to the hotel and ask them if I can. Actually, first of all, I went up to the roof because I think don't ask permission first, just try to do it. But the door was locked to the roof. So I asked uh, the concierge, I said, hey, do you mind if I uh, come in five in the morning and shoot a sunrise on your 
building. And she's like, uh, let me text my boss. Let me text my manager. And I was like, OK, this is definitely not going to happen, because he could just be like, no. <laughs> That's the weirdest thing. Um, so then I waited there for 45 minutes. And she's like, yeah, he said you can come in. The engineer will let you up onto the roof. So I went up with the engineer at 5 AM in the morning. He came in early for me, uh, opened the door. He's like, don't jump off. And then he closed the door. <laughs> And then he left me there for three or four hours, where I just filmed this amazing, well, actually, I mean, it was a beautiful sunrise. It didn't come up that well. <laughs> the, the time lapse kind of sucked. Um, but I, I think what that taught me is to just question your assumptions. You, kinda, you may not think that um, your boss is going to give you the raise or the promotion, so you don't ask for it. Um, and I think that that's something I learned, and that's something that just minimalism in general has taught me, is to just question assumptions. Don't just go with the grooves of uh, how you think life is going to unfold and kind of pave your own way, your own path. Awesome. I want to thank a few people before, before we get out of here. First off, um, we, it costs a lot of money for us to go on the road like this. And so our friends over at um, a company called Bluehost, they, they host our website. And we, when we first started a blog, we couldn't even spell HTML. And, and so they, they've helped us out a lot over the years. And they help pay just for our travel and uh, to make it out here. So I just want to say thanks to Bluehost. If you give them a round of applause, I'd really appreciate it. Also, this seriously wouldn't be possible without the guy who produces our podcast, does all our operations, does everything on the back end. Uh, Sean Harding is back there in the darkness where he always is. Give him a round of applause. He is the hardest working man in minimal minimalism, for sure. Um, and I think most important, I, I really want to thank you all for, for coming out here tonight and being willing to, to stick out with, uh, stick out throughout all of this. We're, we're going to be out there afterward. We'll, we'll uh, do some photos. We have some books out there. If you forgot your wallet or don't have enough money right now, you're welcome to, to grab a book. Uh, Sean will be out there um, uh, selling them as well. But if, if you don't have the money for it right now, that's OK. You're welcome to, to pick one up on us. Um, and well, should we should we close them out? All right, we'll be out there and oh, grab a hug. Obviously, right? You you know they're free and transferable. You saw that in the film, and we've gotten much better after tens of thousands of hugs. <laughs> so um, yeah, the, the the hugs in the film were not up to par, and now I feel like you know I, I understand the science of hugging. So so feel free to uh, to grab one of those. We will we'll be out there and. Of course, if you leave here with one message, we hope it's this. Love people and use things. The opposite never works. Thanks so much for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing you think that you need. Every little thing that's just feeding your greed Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it Every little thing that you gotta have Every little thing that you gotta have You gotta reach for and you gotta grab Oh, I bet that you'd be fine without it so tear your eyes away Or tear 